Thank you, Pastor Zach. Hi, everybody. How you doing? <laughs> Have you been having a good time not having to listen to me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you with that. Well, it is indeed great to be back if you're new or newer around here. Uh, I had the blessing with my wife and my family to be able to disconnect for a period of about five or so weeks. It extended a little bit longer than we even thought because of some changes in the schedule. But I am so grateful to be able to be with you today and to be able to just sort of pull up a family chair and share out of my own heart some of the joy that the Holy Spirit um, has given to me. And uh, even my wife, I asked Melissa before I stepped up here, I said, would you like to share anything? She says, well, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I realize that many of you have been pedal to the metal, working real hard, especially if you've been in school and you're trying to finish out some schooling. Maybe there's job issues that have been going on. Maybe there's family and relational stress. But I want you to know that in the kingdom of God, all is well, and our Lord is in control, and you and I should each be able to readily receive his peace and his strength and his power. But because we live in such a manner that is so high-paced, sometimes we miss out on all that that the Lord wants to provide for us. And a lot of which we do is of utmost necessity and importance in our life as we seek to serve God's purposes and our family or our employer. But if we live in such a way that we do not enjoy the presence of the Lord, as I've been able to sit back and enjoy his presence in these last few weeks, then we need to reevaluate and we need to reorder. Because I think sometimes the pace and manner in which we're living our lives was never intended by the Father. I used to describe it as running on RPMs that are so high that we're going to blow a head gasket. And for me, though I hadn't shared too much with too many people, I found myself at that kind of place. Pushing, being able to try to sustain ministry for the church, expansion for the church, through the whole COVID run, being able to look to the future for what God has for us. But if in your interior life, things are shriveling up and some things are dying, it's not good because we have to serve out of the overflow of our life to our family and our friends, even in our workplace and definitely to the Lord. And I just want to acknowledge before the Lord his goodness and being able to give some renewal and restoration, not only to my soul, but also to my family as we were able to take these weeks away and um, experience not only him in spirit, but experience him territorially where he was able to spend some of his time. And so the picture you have behind me is a picture that some of you should well know. Others of you say, I think I sort of know that. But this is the Western Wall, or as Christians sometimes refer to it, the Wailing Wall, in Jerusalem, Israel. 
24-7, Jewish people gather at the remnants of this second temple of Herod, and they worship and they offer their prayers. They take their little pieces of paper and they'll write a prayer on it and they'll wad it up and they'll put it in the crevice and the cracks of that wall. And they do it on a regular basis for mostly Orthodox Jews, if you see the traditional garb that they would have, but also contemporary Jews, Reformed Jews, and others from around the world will gather at this wall and worship. It was this wall was the western wall to the uh, second temple of Herod that actually existed during the time of Jesus Christ. And on it today, on the Temple Mount, where the trees and the Muslim mosque are, which is called the Dome of the Rock, the temple in Jesus' day stood. And it was probably a third again, a uh, third higher in Jesus' day. And the wall that encased the temple where people worshipped when Jesus showed up on the scene was high and around this. And this part here that they worship at and pray at is really in the lower one-third of the outer wall. But the temple itself was destroyed in 70 A.D. when the Romans killed what they felt was a rebellion of the Jewish people. Jesus himself predicted this through the years with Islam coming and those kinds of things. The Temple Mount has never been rebuilt. Others could probably tell you much more detail of this. Definitely our tour guide would have. But it's a sacred place. It's a sacred place not because God dwells inside of buildings, but we are acknowledging his presence in our world because he is the Holy One. And Scripture teaches that we no longer go to a temple or have to go to a temple to worship him, but that we worship him in spirit and truth, and it's through Christ in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, sacred place to pray, sacred place to remember, sacred place to look forward to the hope as it's prophesied about the restoration of Israel and some of the aspects of the Temple Mount itself. But it was actually one week ago, this very hour, that we were able to be there as family. I think I must have left that remote back there. And Israel was 10 hours ahead. I was mindful that Pastor Zach, and you were here, Zach was teaching last week. And we took a picture on this Temple Mount. Mom, me, 
our oldest son, Ryan, Levi, and Grace. Pastor Zach is my son, and his wife, Brittany, my daughter-in-law, and their little baby, Remy. We were very disappointed they could not go with us, but Zach has been to Israel before, but my family had never been to Israel. And why is that such a big deal? Well, it's not necessarily, though I would encourage you to really try to go if you've never been able to go. It was 40 years ago that I had, the last time I had the opportunity to be in Israel. My parents got me to the Holy Land when I was a young adult. And if I was to look back on probably the top five things that mobilized me to be passionate for God and Jesus and his kingdom's work, being in that place where Jesus walked would be one of them. Because sometimes we think that Scripture is just full of nice, good stories, and yes, it happened there, but when you actually walked in places that you know that Jesus walked and ministered and uh, was crucified and was raised from the dead, you go, hey, hey, this this is real stuff. This wasn't legend. This wasn't story. He was here. And you see travelers from around the world who are coming and commemorating and walking in the steps of Jesus. And there's churches, I don't really care for it, but there's all kinds of churches built over all kinds of places, whether they're traditional places or not. But to be where Christ entered this world, God himself come in the flesh, there's just something that stirs within you a connectedness like nothing else. And I knew that not only did I want to get my family to Israel, there was a need for me to have some fresh reconnectedness with Jesus. And I want to say thank you for those of you who prayed for us while we were gone. I know it was an extended time away, but I knew for me to get rid of some of the toxins of responsibility and do some other things that we would need that kind of aspect and dynamic. And that's indeed what we were able to do. Now, here's the thing. How do you actually get there and do all that? Let me tell you a little bit how all this came about. Uh, All of us remember the dry run of COVID, right? And you're like just plodding and getting through. And everything shut down, right? Travel shut down definitely for that kind of thing. But I was thinking towards the latter part of COVID that maybe there's a possibility to do something like a trip like this. And probably to be honest, the seeds of it came from my daughter Grace. Grace had explained to me that she felt that uh, it would be great and even led of the Lord to get baptized in the Jordan River. And so I'm like, that sounds cool, Grace. I would love to be able to baptize you in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. So that sort of stuck in the back of my mind. But during the COVID run, and I, I, I found this cruise that was going to park not only in the Holy Land, for three and a half, four days, but it was also going to go to Ephesus, where Paul was positioned for a lot of his ministry. The book of Ephesians was written to the people at Ephesus. It was an ancient city, but it was at the hub of all the Mediterranean activity. It also was going to go to Athens, Greece, where the uh, uh, Acropolis is. And Paul showed up there preaching the gospel. And it was also going to be based, beginning and end, out of Rome. 
And I thought, wow, that all sort of makes sense. I've not been to Rome. It was a place I hadn't been. I'd been to Ephesus and Athens and Israel. But I'm like, I'd like to see Rome and, and sort of embellish in the history of Rome and what happened there and even see the Vatican and all that kind of thing. And so there was this cruise, and I'm like, I, I, I don't know. And I, I talked to my wife out, and we just, we'd had some monies reserved here, and, that, and we just did it. Thankfully, two of those five people were able to pay their own way. And so we just jumped at it. And I didn't know if we'd be able to go or not. And then the clouds cleared for us to take on that opportunity. Now, the cruise was a Royal Caribbean cruise. Started and ended in Rome, but you got to get to Rome, right? Well, there's another added expense. Then I found out that the boat that we would be on that was going to stop at all these places was actually going to do a transatlantic cruise to be repositioned from uh, the Caribbean to Rome to take this cruise and then do others through the summer. And lo and behold, when I looked it up, it was cheaper to take a boat than it was to fly to Rome. And so we had thought about it, one of those bucket list things. Could we do that? I could disconnect. I didn't know about doing the transatlantic thing. But we got on a boat on April 22nd out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and we did a transatlantic cruise for seven days and then this cruise line was skirting the coast of Spain. It stopped in France and then Italy, and then it ended up parked in Rome, Italy. Just Melissa and I and our son Levi were on that portion of the trip. And then Grace finished her semester of college, and my son Ryan was able to take off work, and they flew to Rome and joined us. During this trip, the big part was the Israel part, right? Well, I don't know if you listen to much news, and maybe it was voiced here a couple weeks ago or whatever. We are excited about getting into the Holy Land. And they say that there's some geopolitical situation going on in the Gaza Strip, which was some rocket fire going back and forth, and that we would not be able to dock in Ashdod, which is south of Tel Aviv, which is closer to the Gaza Strip. It's like, okay, we knew this was all going to be, but they moved us up the coast, and we ended up disembarking at Haifa. But we merely disembarked to get our um, immigration stamped and that kind of thing. We were to get back on the boat, and then we were uh, to all be released. And we had made a plan to stay a couple nights in Jerusalem, so we weren't going to the back of the boat. We were going to put it all together with a private tour of somebody's going to take us around. We had it all planned. We had our bags packed. We were down in the lobby of this cruise liner, and the captain comes on board, and he says... Due to some more extenuating geopolitical situations, we are not going to be able to let you disembark and go to Israel. But, and he seemed to be excited about this, we are going to go to Crete and Santorini. Normally, Santorini would make me really excited. It did not. We ended up having 15 minutes to decide if we were going to get off the boat with our bags and just stay in Israel. But I wanted to go to Ephesus. I wanted to take us to Athens. I wanted to be able to visit Rome. And we felt that was just too much change. So we stayed on the boat. When the cruise finished in Rome, we ended up staying there for three days. And then we were able to change our flights because they were on some award miles that we had gathered. And we were uh, then flying to Tel Aviv, Israel, and we got to experience Israel for those four days. But a week ago, right now, 
we had just landed, got in the youth hostel because we were staying cheap, and I ran the family down at nighttime to see the Wailing Wall and for us to have that photo op. A lot's happened for my family in seven days, and Melissa will say, that's for sure. But God used it all to bring some restoration in our heart. And I want to just share with you four simple things that God sort of spoke to me about as I was on that long 15-hour flight back on Wednesday night. And these reference this need for us as a people to live in the presence of God and to be about the things that transcend all things. And so with that, if you'll go on this brief journey with me, I want to just highlight a few points related to our need this summer to make it his summer. I can't believe it's actually summer. I come back and I sort of forgot it was Memorial Day weekend. That's, that's a good thing because I'd sort of checked out that, that much. I'm like, oh yeah, it is. It's Memorial Day weekend. Summer sort of officially begins, right? And so we have um, a lot of days and weeks before us this summer. How are we going to use those days and weeks? And I want to challenge you that uh, this summer, that it would be his summer and his summer in your life and his summer for his kingdom. So with that, here we go. You ready? This is number one that came to me as I got a chance to disconnect. And when you travel and you're able to disconnect, maybe these will resonate with you as well. But number one is this. There is a lot of beauty, a lot of beauty in our world. Let's slow down and take time to enjoy presence with God and his incredible creation. Now, I say presence with God because um, we can say, oh, God's presence, yeah. But presence with God is us spending time, initiating time, isolating time to let his presence through his Holy Spirit to be in our everyday. And that we would take the time to, to slow down the RPMs so we don't blow the head gasket, that we would enjoy all of his creation, his incredible beauty, and that we would just walk with him in the midst of all that. To all together, we had the opportunity, this is crazy, and, and one of the reasons I was hesitant to even tell people about what we were doing, because I know there's different people respond sometimes different ways. Even I had some relatives that were like, oh my gosh, did you come across some unexpected inheritance? Because I don't, you know, have the opportunity to do that. I'm like, well, let's try to rejoice with those who rejoice like we mourn with those who mourn. I mean, come on. And, you know, it's like, I, I understand that, but we were able to go to seven different countries in a very convenient time frame, in a very frugal kind of manner, and when you do that, you're experiencing all kinds of incredibles. There's the incredible of the creation. There's the incredible of the cultures. There's the incredible of the peoples. But you start to get this big picture and concept of who God is. Probably one of the most enjoyable things for me, and I was talking to somebody right before church, is like, well, how did that transatlantic thing go? 
Well, it's sort of funny. They sort of joked here or there about the cruise director did about, you know, the Titanic or this or that. And they done, it's like, we, we don't talk about that. I never even thought a thing about that. But when you're at sea for seven days and you're sleeping with the, the outside door open and hear the waves splash and you get up and you still see the same thing for seven days, see, you realize the vastness of God and the vastness of the world that he created and all that would be below the seas. We don't know, right? But he knows. He's created it. One of the cool places was when we had actually crossed the Atlantic and we went through the Gibraltar Strip. Do you know what that is? Where you got Spain, Portugal on the top, you got Morocco, Africa on the south. It's a narrow passageway into the Mediterranean. I never really knew much or thought much about all that, but here's Gibraltar. And all the ships then started showing up to go into the Mediterranean Sea that had been crossing across the Atlantic. And I thought, what an incredible visual. During the night, I was up at in the middle of the night to make sure I didn't miss that crossing of uh, the Gibraltar Strip. Then you come into a beautiful world, the European world. Weren't able to go to the African coast, of course, but uh, Spain, several stops there. We had a stop in Valencia, in France, in Italy. We were able to get on a bus and go to Florence where the Renaissance happened and, and go into a uh, incredible cathedral where Michelangelo and Galileo were buried. And you start to relish in the, the history and the world and the creation and the different kinds of people and the settings. And yeah, we were glad to get feet on dry land uh, and enjoy the culture and some of the food kind of things. But there was this overwhelming sense not just of those early days, but all the way to we got back uh, later this past week that we live in a big world. And yeah, there's problems and there's conflict and there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed. But sometimes we get so focused on that and so consumed with news issues and our schedules that we don't step back and enjoy the wonder of it all. In Psalm chapter 24, you find these words. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. And you can imagine me, I'm trying to find different places where seas and waters and rushing things are happening. And there's a lot more, especially in the Psalms, than I realized with all that. He goes on and he says, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he? The king of glory. The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. Who wrote that song? 
David. Where did David live? Oh, he had palaces and other things when he became king, but he was a shepherd boy. And he was a shepherdman that knew how to learn to worship God in the grandeur of the world. And he also learned that he needed to make sure that he practiced drawing near to the presence of God in all situations. One of the places we were able to go was uh, down by the Dead Sea, lowest place in all the earth above water, right? And at the north part of the Dead Sea are the caves that are behind En Gedi. South part, there's Masada. We went up on it, which is the last stronghold, the last holdout of the Jewish people when the Romans uh, crushed things in 73, 70 to 73 AD. But the north part, there's these caves, and the caves uh, was where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were huge things. Don't have time to go on all that kind of stuff if you know about it. But the caves were also some of the places that David hid out when he was being pursued by Saul. And you're going like, wow, this was his turf. This was some of his turf. And, and, and you saw some of the, the fields where he was probably a shepherd. You were in Jerusalem in the south part of uh, where this wall's at behind you as the city of David. But in all of it, King David had the ability, even when he messed up in sin and sought God's forgiveness, David had the ability not to turn and run from God, but to turn to God and find his presence and find joy in his presence in the beauty of all creation. And so, I don't know. Somewhere along the line, I have to reorder my life to get back to some of the things I did earlier on in my life, which was spend more time in the wonder and awe of God's creation. That's why I'd like to say, Let's actively worship God. Let's actively worship God with awe and wonder this summer. It's your schedule. What are you going to do? It's my schedule. How am I going to lead my own life and my family? So that was one of the first things that uh, just really struck me, was the whole concept of the need to worship God and to, to draw near to his presence because he's an incredibly big God with an incredibly big world that he created. Sounds simple, we know that, but do we actively change our lives in light of it? The second thing is this. There is a lot of history throughout our world. So let's be mindful. The times are in God's hands and the kingdom of Jesus is at work. Any of you ever done a lot of these excursions or these trips to different lands where there are ancient ruins and you look at the rocks, you look at how things might have been established? You know, in America, why? We, we became a nation in 1776. That's relatively, what, what, 250 years ago. When you go to these places and you look at the ruins, we go back thousands of years sometimes. A lot of times I put context to it. So I'm like, okay, Jesus lived somewhere, you know, uh, in the, the early years, 4 BC through 30 AD kind of thing. And uh, then the Apostle Paul, the other disciples, pretty much all of them were gone, you know, by the end of that first century. And there's a lot. So I'd say, okay, what was around when they were here? When Paul visited Ephesus and he spent three years there, what was Ephesus like for Paul? 
There's some incredible restoration of some of the facilities, the housing that's happened in Ephesus, definitely since I was there 40 years ago. And I uh, would try to imagine what it was. But then you start to realize that Paul, he would look at ruins in Ephesus because he was there in the first century. And he would look at the ruins that went back to 6-700 B.C. So he had some of the same experience we did. We have a very long history in this world. And sometimes we get so consumed with our 70, 80 years uh, that the Lord gives us, we, we become myopic. And that pressing into just the here and now, our present world, our own present life, there's value in that because we need to live out our life in accordance with God's plans for today. As scriptures in the Old Testament said about them, they understood their times and they knew what to do. But sometimes that, that myopicness that happens to us keeps us from understanding that God's been in control of things for a long time and he continues to work out his plans. I had the opportunity to go to Bethlehem, go to the church of the Antiphony, which is an old church built probably around 300 A.D. Some of the first acknowledgement, it was the place where Jesus was born, goes back into, uh, I think, 100 uh, A.D. or whatever, because a lot of these places you go to is like, okay, is this just tradition, or is this authentic, or is this real, right? And you realize that, yeah, probably there was some designation of that, and, and the, the grotto, which was down below the main floor of this church, is a cave, and they usually kept their animals down below the houses sometimes. It wasn't a barn in the back with a manger, right? And the people would uh, come down through this grotto. We had the opportunity to touch what they were, has, has historically, for my goodness, at least, you know, uh, 1,500, 1,600 years, been the place where acknowledgement that God entered the world in human flesh. We circled up his family in that down grotto area and just had a word of prayer, but it starts to contextualize time for you. And somewhere in that, it starts to make my time, my world, not seem to be so overly important because God is in control. Times are in his hands. From one century to a millennium, to another millennium, God is in control. And the kingdom that Jesus brought is a kingdom, as it says in Isaiah, his government will have no end. And why is that interesting to me? Why did that strike me? Well, when you're in Rome and you visit the Roman Colosseum, and you stand on the floor where the gladiators fought. They were professional gladiators that they tried to keep alive because they were good celebrity kind of people, but the slave gladiators, they didn't make it out of the Colosseum. And they described that they found a big graveyard that contained close to the bones of a million people outside the Colosseum. And the games that went on in there, some of the persecution, even persecution of Christians, Yea, nay, directly, if it was because of their Christian faith, a lot of people died in that Colosseum for the entertainment of people. Right outside of that is the Agora, the marketplace of Rome. And the place where Julius Caesar, the emperor, they say, sat and watched Rome burn. He fiddled while Rome burned. Then he blamed it on the Christians. 
Christians were persecuted, put to death in Rome at that time, and you, you try to comprehend all that. And you go, Lord, Lord, really? Yeah, Christianity was illegal. You'd be killed. I read even this morning a headline about a family who was found with Bibles, I believe it was in North Korea, and has been put in long-term prison just because they had a Bible. You realize the persecution that's happened through the years in so many ways. So many kingdoms have come, risen, and fallen. Constantine changed all that in the early 300s when he made Christianity the official religion, if you will, of the Roman world. And why was that? Because God was at work. Times are in his hands. And the followers of Jesus loved like Jesus loved. They cared for the sick and the dying. When plagues hit, they stayed in the cities. They didn't run to the countrysides. They took care of people, and people began to notice it, and they began to understand that this faith wasn't just talk, it was walk. And they couldn't hold it back anymore. And so it was all changed. And history literally has been changed because of that decision back in 312, I believe it was, or so. God's at work. Kingdoms rise, kingdom fall, but the kingdom of God will be forever. That's why one of the things that came to my mind, especially when I was there in Jerusalem and I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking about Jesus, he didn't give much credence to politics, did he? You don't find a lot in Scripture about, you know, you need to take on those Roman people. Can't believe they're controlling Jerusalem like they are. He stood before Pilate. Being in the area of the Via Della Rosa that he walked in the Praetorium, where he stood before Pilate and all that acknowledged it. That was an incredible, incredible Passion Week. When you stand in the Garden of Gethsemane and you realize it was in this very vicinity somewhere that he, he, he sweat a prayer out, oh God, if, if, if this can pass me, please don't. But he was obedient to God and, and then he was taken captive on that night and all we commemorate about in a Passion Week, you can walk from place to place, even a, a supposed upper room they think that could have been it. But when he stood before Pilate, do you remember what he said? Pilate was really bothered that he was getting bugged by the Jewish people concerning this Jesus, so be Messiah. And they say, you need to do something with him because he's claiming to be a king, and there is no king but Caesar. Pilate knew he hadn't done anything wrong, but he washed his hands to get rid of the situation. And he'd called Jesus to come and stand before him, and he said, they say these things about you. What do you say? Are you a king? And Jesus, he just sort of had to smile probably. I don't know how he did it. He says, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this I've come into the world and for this I've been born. Did others tell you about me or did you come to this on your own conclusion? Ah, I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate said. Historic, happened. Walk a place where it was. But then Jesus says um, this verse, this phrase, and it just struck me as I was spending time in Jerusalem. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. 
but now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus brought good news of the kingdom. We talk about it a lot here as a church. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning his rule and reign. Repent and believe. It wasn't like we sort of package it today. Oh, uh, you got to do some sin management and deal with the sin thing. So just accept Jesus as your savior and then move on with life. That is a very small context of the grander message Jesus preached. He preached that he was bringing another kingdom and his kingdom was not of the physical realm. Alexander the Great had come and gone. The Romans were now in control. Before all that, there was the the Persians and the Babylonians. And what's happened since there, we see people and nations around the world trying to, to, to stake their own claim to new turf and build their own kingdom. Whether a democracy or dictatorships, a lot of political fighting, right? And posturing. About the kingdom, even in our own nation, we spend an awful lot of time talking about politics and and getting worried about politics even. And there's a rightful place for politics. We get to participate in the governance of our uh, nation. We should be actively participating in it. But friends, we do not walk in step with any kingdom of this world. We walk in step with the kingdom of God through the power, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who's coming again to establish his reign on this earth. There is a lot of history throughout our world. I've seen enough stones and ruins to to have a couple year break, probably. Trying to put it all together in timelines and different seasons. But let's be mindful that the times are in God's hands. In the kingdom of Jesus, his kingdom is at work. And so let's patiently serve Christ and his eternal plans this summer. Allow his freshness to roll over you from the word of God. Investigate it anew about how his kingdom has come and will come in its fullness someday. And then take his words of the prayer that he taught his disciples Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this, our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, Lord, I want to serve you this summer, and I want your kingdom and your eternal plans to be fresh on where my focus is. So those are two. Let me give you two others just briefly. The third is this. There is a lot of need in our world. Let's offer our lives to Christ as he works out his purpose with love and compassion for all. There's a lot of people we met 
I didn't do a lot of people engagement, though, because I was trying to renew my own spirit and be engaged in too many stories and too many things. I was like, I just need to uh, be focused on my wife and my, my family and, and the Lord. <laughs> but we met a lot of different kinds of people. And as you get away from some of the full responsibilities of life, you find the Holy Spirit that lives in you starts to endear you to other people. And you start to, to not look past them. You know what that's like, right? Look past them. You've been talking to people before sometimes, and they're talking to you, but they're looking past you, right? Because they're not focused on you. They're preoccupied. I began to get my eyes focused on people. Whether it was the steward that would fix our rooms, or we, we had a great friendship we sort of built with a head waiter and waitress and and. Trust me, when you're on a boat for 24 days, you get to know those people pretty good. And they get to know your family. The tour guides, the people that would be like at the youth hostel or other places where you'd stay or the neighborhood market. And you start to wonder, have they ever been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ or what's going on in their life? And you take away some of your people blindness and you begin to at least pray for an individual, whether you're in their shop for a while or you're, uh, you know, stepping off of the boat from where you'd build a relationship with them or struck up a conversation with somebody in an elevator or where it might have been. You, you put context to your life and how God's using it in a moment. And no, there weren't any big, hey, I witnessed to somebody and they came to know Jesus, that kind of stuff. But you know, you were able to minister encouragement and at least be kind. In Luke 10, 2, Jesus said this. He said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. We know this verse because of the Plan A conference we had uh, in March. Instead of the word workers, the word's laborers. And Jesus was looking at the fields around him. And trust me, when you haven't been there for 40 years, you start to realize that uh, the land flowing with milk and honey is coming back flowing with milk and honey with what they're doing over there. And whether it's, it's all the fruits and the other kinds of specialties that they grow in Israel or even a wheat field I saw with a combine kind of thing, which that's sort of my upbringing, what I came from in the Midwest, you're like, yeah, there's, there's harvest that needs to be taken on. Mango trees and banana trees. And all. You're like, there, there's work to be done. Who's going to do the work? Jesus saw the same thing during his time. And he exhorted the people that were around him, his disciples, to open up their eyes and ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the field. There is a lot of need in our world. Let's offer our lives to Christ as he works out his purpose with love and compromise for all. And kicking back to the Plan A conference, let's daily see, stop, Spend time with others this summer. You can't reach everybody's need. I understand that. Probably only a handful sometimes of people. But who is it that Jesus is asking you 
to be his presence with, and to be able to encourage. Finally, number four. There's a lot of hope for our world. Let's prioritize witness to the cross and resurrection of Jesus as the lone means of true transfiguration. Do you guys know the difference between the Pantheon and the uh, uh, Parnathion? I didn't. Do you know they're different? The Pantheon is in Rome and is dedicated to all the Roman gods. The Parnathion is on the Acropolis, the, the high place in Athens, this huge temple, but it was dedicated to uh, the goddess Athena. And it existed somewhere like 440 BC, and then the Pantheon uh, in Rome was, for all the Roman gods, was in like 120 AD or whatever. There's about 600 years between it. You know, 600 years, just like that, I believe. You know what? <laughs> and I think about all the gods, right? that have been worshipped and sawed down, and we don't have stone statues today. You know, when they, when they do excavations of America a thousand years from now, if the Lord tarries, they'll probably just discover performing arts centers and, and uh, football stadiums and other things that get them dialed into what we did as a people. To be in Athens, to observe Mars Hill, close to the Acropolis, the Parnathia, Par, uh, uh, the, the temple to, Di, uh, to Athena or Diana. And then you see the Agora, all the marketplace that he overlooked in Athens. And to think this man who had persecuted Christians and came to know Jesus when Jesus struck him blind on the road to Damascus and turned his life around. And he became a follower of Jesus, became the foremost missionary. And I tracked the missionary travels on my map and shared it with my family some. This is where we're at. I was like, that's pretty cool to go to Cyprus and to go to Crete. Those are places that Paul stopped in. Crete was not a fun place because he was, you know, about from there. He ended up being shipwrecked at sea and that kind of stuff. But you're tracking all the, the travels of Paul, those kinds of things. And you think about him being at Ephesus. And then he goes over to Athens. He walks in there. He's on Mars Hill. And he gives this speech to uh, the Greek world, Greek and Roman world time, he says, I noticed you have a statue to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that unknown God. And he brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to a far more pagan culture than you and I are in today. And it changed the world. And what did he do? He focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ and who he was. Because it's in the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, giving witness to what happened that brings about the transformation of people if they will but believe in him and follow Jesus. Do you remember Jesus when he was going through Samaria and we were just in Samaria a few days ago? It says this in John 4.13. He was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well Jesus answered, whoever, anyone who drinks this water from that well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a, in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
He was giving an analogy of life that he came to bring. You drink, you get thirsty again. Got thirsty many of a day. There's people that are drinking of waters today in our culture, thinking that in those waters they're going to find fulfillment and purpose. But in the end, it's not eternal and it doesn't fill their soul. Jesus and Jesus alone can meet the needs of people and change and transform their life and bring them eternal water that will well up within them. And so I just want to acknowledge this summer, there is a lot of hope for our world, even though there's a lot of negative. I turned off my cable subscription while I was gone, saved some money and my internet. I don't know that I'm going to turn it back on. I think I might do that cable cutting thing they talk about. Because life went a lot better without being up to speed on everything. In fact, as I traveled around, I'd get bits and pieces, and I'd be on the internet here or there and catch some news fragments. And you're in a, such a big, broad world and all these different countries and time frames going on, and, and they all have their own situations at hand. We were actually in Turkey the day that they were voting for their president, Ergon or whatever, and he was going to get another term. And I was thinking about, yeah, every country has this voting issue if they're democracies, right? And I just thought to myself, you know, all those things back in our news that make the news I don't want to say that they're petty, but a lot of times they're just small and they're fleeting and they come and go. But we spend an awful lot of time consumed with them and thinking that this or that is going to help make the day. Paul and the followers of Jesus, they stayed focused on being eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus and telling people about true transformation that could come from him. And so this whole aspect of being focused on what's really important. Let's boldly present the gospel of Jesus in both word and deed this summer, and it takes both. How are you going to align your summer? What's going to happen? I trust that you will be able to find yourself renewed in worshiping God in the wonder and the splendor of He, who He is. To understand that the kingdom of Jesus is at hand and he is working his will through the seasons of time. I trust you're able to open your eyes to see, to, to stop, spend time with people who have needs and to care for them. And that you will boldly present the gospel of Jesus Christ in certain places and times, both word and deed, where it's needed for people to come to new life. You should... Um, recognize this picture. It stood before you for about three months. It's a picture of Sea of Galilee, except I took this picture. I took this picture on Wednesday, and sort of some of the same spot that the picture was behind me when I did the series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, to me, it's the most beautiful place to worship the Lord Jesus. You can't build a church over the Sea of Galilee. It's too big. It's real authentic to me. And this is where Jesus walked and talked. And, and down over towards here is Capernaum, which was the, the town that he ended up living in when he moved to the Sea of Galilee from Nazareth. And we were in Nazareth too and all that kind of thing. But 
I love the Sea of Galilee. Maybe it's water, I don't know. Maybe it's that wellspring of water that he's offering for eternal life. Well, at the south end of the Sea of Galilee, there's a special place. The north end is fed by the Jordan River, but the south end, the Jordan River exits, and it goes on down to the Dead Sea, and then it stops. It doesn't go anywhere from there. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. And yes, we floated in the Dead Sea and all that kind of weird thing, and people putting mud on themselves uh, for uh, good medicinal reasons, I guess. I didn't. But on the south side of the sea, there was a place in the Jordan River where people were being baptized. Take a look. That's the Jordan River. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And this whole thing sort of started with my family in part because my daughter said, I want to be baptized in the Jordan River. And so as Grace would say, let's get her done. My daughter, Melissa and I's daughter Grace, was baptized in the Jordan River this last week. And it was a sacred, beautiful experience. Happened pretty quick. But when she gave this pose, I just thought to myself, you know, that's what I'm longing for. People coming into rebirth. She's been a believer for a season of life, but she wanted to follow in that obedience in this particular place. And so when she came up out of the waters, as surely as we've had baptisms and some of our students and others have been baptized here, we, we are celebrating a resurrected, a new life. And I sort of call this the Dida Day pose. Filled with life and joy. Friends, people need the Lord. Let's prioritize our lives around sharing the hope of the gospel of Jesus that his kingdom may come in their life and that they may live eternally with him. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And as they come, we're going to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings. But if you have a spiritual need, mark it on the back of your card or a prayer need. We'd like to follow up and be of encouragement to you. This week, probably over 3,000 people are meeting in Spokane, Washington from our denomination called the Christian Missionary Alliance for a biannual general council, highest form of governance in our denomination. And on Friday of this week, on June 2nd, they're going to have a special offering. It's a matching gift offering up to $360,000 for us to raise monies to be able to support more missionaries to go and fulfill the Great Commission, which was to go into all the world and baptize and make disciples. And I want to encourage you this week to give to Global Missions as we partner with God's ongoing work this summer. Anything that comes in this week or actually this month for Global Missions, we're going to make a part of that offering on Friday. So you can send that in later this week or just tell me about it. Or give today, whether in the baskets that are being passed for your offering or to be able to go to this special place online to do it. But I want you to participate in all kinds of ways in us bringing hope to our world. But it begins, if I can say this, and this is what's happened to me in these last weeks, 
It begins with a heart of worship. A.W. Tozer used to say, worshipers first, workers second. It has to come out from the overflow of our life. And if you've begun to shrivel up in your interior life, become weary, prioritize worship, and through his spirit, he'll enable you to be his worker this summer, his summer. And so with that, let's close by exalting the Lord God Almighty in worship.